Hi, my name's Andrew. Welcome to the Review and Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Leon Simons, and we're going to be talking about kind of reverse geoengineering, the idea of removing sulfur from the atmosphere. Sound crazy? It just might be. Leon, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. And I'd love to hear a bit of background from you on where you work and what level you're at and you know how many monsters you've killed, whether you've progressed to level three and got the power-ups in your academic career. So give us a bit of background. Yeah, so hi, I'm, my name is Leon Simons. I work for the global think tank Club of Rome uh, and in the, inside the Dutch chapter. I work there as a climate researcher, currently doing research on the effect of reducing sulfur emissions, especially the reduction from shipping, which was 80% from about 50,000 ships from one year to the next in 2020. Um, and besides my work at the Club of Rome, I'm an entrepreneur and I work on developing energy technologies for developing countries with a focus on Ethiopia. That's it. Well, that sounds like a pretty interesting sideline. So why don't we take a traditional review of two diversion and you can tell us about that for a minute. Yeah, so in I work in Ethiopia and Ethiopia is a country of about 110 million people and they eat these big flat breads and half of the energy used in the country is used for baking these breads, mainly wood. And there's a lot of opportunity to reduce the energy required for baking. And what we did, we developed a new stove to prepare this food in an energy efficient manner. And yeah, we managed to save about when you compare it to wood use, over 90% of energy. When you compare it to electricity use, over 50% of the energy. Well, that's kind of astonishing. I mean, I don't really think of bread baking as being a major part of my energy impact. And I think that that one little anecdote really does put into perspective the enormous gulf in energy use between the developing world and the developed world. I mean, you've, you've got a, 110 million people, so that's a country that's slightly more populous than Germany, I think, there. And they're using, you know, 50% of the energy they use on a day-to-day basis, just baking bread. Absolutely astonishing. So when all of these people talk about degrowth and all this stuff that they go on about, that's, you know, that's what it means. That's, that's the cold face. That's the sharp end of degrowth. People who, this total energy consumption is twice what they use to bake bread, hey? And, and you're trying to create a world where people use less energy. Absolutely astonishing. Well, I'm very, very glad we took that little detour. But we're mainly here to talk about shipping. So when you talked about shipping reducing in the last year, was that because fewer people were moving goods or was that a relative reduction in sulfur pollution based on you know, a similar number of vessels but taking different patterns of journeys or using different types of fuels? What was behind that decrease? Yeah, in uh, 2020, starting the 1st of January of 2020, new shipping regulation of the International Maritime Organization came into effect. And this changed the sulfur fuel content of ships from 3.5% to 0.5% on the, when, they, when these ships sail on the global oceans. And but can you clarify that for us, please? Because when you say sulfur content, the way that sulfur in fuels is stored, it's not like little bits of sulfur or you know individual sulfur molecules that are being 
mixed into the fuel. It's it's sulfur it's sulfonated hydrocarbons, isn't it? So you have like a thiol or something like that in in the in the uh, fuel. So how how are you measuring that three percent? Is it three percent of your fuel is a molecule which consists of at least one sulfur atom, or is that three percent sulfur by weight? How does that work? It's the things that sulfur by weight. So to get it, to make a step back, so the, the sulfur that's, uh, uh, sorry, the, the fuel, of course, that's drilled in in the Middle East and in Venezuela and in, in countries in, where they get the fuel, it has sulfur fuel content. I think that's for, for, for in mass of, I think, half percentage on average. And then, Fuel is distilled. They take the, the best parts from the fuel to make kerosene and to make uh, benzene for cars and, and diesel for, for trucks. And then what's left over, that's, that's the, it's very thick fuel. So it's called bunker fuel. And, and that's what's sold to ships. And it's so thick that it's they have to heat it before they they can uh, use it in the ship. So it's all it's always heated. The fuel's heated in order to flow to the to the engines. Um, so it's 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 really uh, it's it's a bit like tar. And and that's tradition. Like the, for the for before two thousand ten, yes, before two thousand ten, there's a sulfur fuel content of four point five percent maximum. And that changed from 2010 to 3.5%. And then in emission control areas, which is around North America and Northwestern Europe, it changed in 2015 to 0.5% sulfur fuel content. And then in in 2020, it changed to 0.5% globally. So that's from 3.5 to 0.5%. So that's... And I'm uh, assuming that's... That's all done because of air quality, right? You want to improve the health of people who work on ships and particularly around ports. So there's a lot of maritime traffic coming and going, right? Yeah, so global health effects indeed for uh, people living near coastal areas mainly. And and environmental effects, of course, acidification of, of, the, of the environment, that sort of thing. So indeed for, for health and for, for environmental reasons, the, the sulfur fuel content was reduced and it can, so I mentioned already changing the, the fuel, but it can also be done by using scrubbers. As scrubbers are it's called desulfurization systems. So it's like a, a big shower head inside the, the chimney of the, of the vessel, which, which rains out the sulfur from the, from the exhaust from the ships. And then it enters the I'm water. So- yeah, and I guess that that's just rejected into the ocean, right? So you're yeah, generally yes. Okay, and and if you're doing that in a refinery and you're removing the sulfur before it goes into the fuel, how is that done? What can, is that is that a, is that a distillation process? You're physically removing the sulfur-containing molecules, or are you chemically treating the fuel so that you're putting a, a substance in that reacts with sulfur? No, the sulfur is, is taken out of the fuel. I don't, I'm, I don't work for another company, so I don't know all the details on how that's done. But uh, and it depends a bit on the fuel. I've I've learned different uh, different suppliers uh, have different types of fuel. Sometimes there's there's also higher amounts of 
black carbon emissions I've heard, depending a bit on the fuel. Because, yeah, of course, they, they take out stuff, but sometimes they, yeah, they, they use different type of fuel, which is less, which has less sulfur, but has more different, different compounds, more perifinic, we, I, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're taking out the sulfur and it's 3% by weight, you're taking out an awful lot of chemicals that contain the sulfur atom, right? I mean, they, they wouldn't, as I say, they don't just exist as little chunks of sulfur. They're bound up in the molecules inside the fuel. So you're taking a, a large range of, of sulfur-containing components out of the fuel, either, either chemically or, or physically, and so it's going to make a big difference in fuel properties. Yeah. Um, so my understanding of this is that the sulfur goes up the chimney of the or the funnel of the ship, and then it forms cloud condensation nuclei or, or, or aerosols, free-floating aerosols in the troposphere, just like it does in the stratosphere, but they're shorter-lived. Is that, is that basically correct? Yeah, so there's these aerosols, of course, they, in, the, in the troposphere, they, they interact less with water molecules. But in the, in the troposphere, the main effect is estimated to come in, from... In the, in the stratosphere, they interact less with water molecules, surely, that you said troposphere. Oh, sorry. In the troposphere, they interact more with water molecules, and in the stratosphere, they interact less with water molecules. So you have you have the, the cloud effect is stronger in in the troposphere. And what's important is that these aerosols or the cloud condensation nuclei are emitted at low levels over the oceans. So, then, so is the main effect is the main effect uh, the aerosol direct effect? So they're forming little shiny balls that float around in the air and the sunshine bounces off them? Or is the main effect those little shiny balls then turn into relatively larger cloud droplets and and, 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 and make big puffy clouds that yeah. are... It's, it's estimated that the biggest effect comes from clouds, from the in increasing the size and the reflectivity and the longevity of clouds. So if you if you're emitting sulfur and your the sulfur is ending up as cloud condensation nuclei, how can we be sure that the total number of cloud condensation nuclei overall is really being changed? Is it not a competitive process that the clouds are going to form anyway and they just form over what's nearest and most convenient? And if there's no sulfur, they'll find a bacterium or a bit of dust or something like that and they'll they're just going to go about their day, whatever happens, and the sulfur is just the easiest, laziest thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a good question to ask, and for for me, it's so if you if you you can for example do the cloud bottle test, which is like the smallest experiment you can do to make a cloud, where you put some water in a bottle and you you add some, uh, you try to make a cloud in a bottle, and then. You put, a, you put a lid on, you press the bottle, and then you don't see a cloud form inside. But if you add some aerosols, you can see a cloud form inside. So that's so, – so if you light a match – How, how exactly it, do you do that? Is that like a home experiment you can do, or, or is there yeah. more to it than that? Yeah, you can make a – if you go on YouTube and, you, and you, you look for cloud in a bottle, you can make a – it shows that you can put some warm water or in, in a bottle – you fill it up about three quarters, like a plastic yeah. bottle, uh, like like a 
soda soda bottle, and then you, of course, there's some water vapor forming in inside the bottle. But then, if and if you press if you press the bottle, so you change the pressure. Normally, you don't and you don't see a cloud form. You don't see any condensation inside the bottle. But if you add some aerosols, if you like to match, put it inside the bottle. And you just throw the match inside the bottle and you close the bottle and then you press, you can see a cloud form. And is that because of the salt? Is that because of the sulfur? Is it the sulfur from the match that does it? Because matches yeah. do smell a bit of sulfur, don't they, right? Sorry? Yes, yeah, yeah. It matches indeed. You can it's sulfur or even even different organic compounds. Yeah, of course, they can also act as condensation nuclei. I just I'm, I just mentioned this to 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 show that. If you increase the amount of cloud condensation nuclei, you can change the how clouds can form. I think what you're saying is that in the open ocean where there's quite clean air, then sulfur aerosols won't be competitive with other cloud condensation nuclei, and in fact will offer the opportunity to create new clouds where otherwise you just have supersaturated water vapor. Is that the case? Yeah, more or less. So what we are doing is we are looking at an area in the North Pacific Ocean and North Atlantic Ocean, which is together about 60, 60 million square kilometers. That's like five times the size of the United States. And we, and this is the area where the most shipping traffic is located, especially indeed what, you, what you're saying over a region that doesn't see any other emissions of, especially other anthropogenic emissions, but also very little emissions of, of aerosols from, from natural sources, except of course from sea salt, depending on the weather. And what we're, what we're looking at is, is mainly satellite data and changes on reflectivity. So incoming sunlight and reflected sunlight. And whether that effect is then from clouds or from these bright particles from of sulfur reflecting light directly. That's in a way, of course, it's interesting and it's interesting to, to research on, but uh, even without knowing if it's a direct effect of these particles or indirect, as in interacting with, with water vapor and creating clouds effect, there is a clear signal of changes in reflectivity over these areas. The reflectivity is decreasing. The albedo, it's called albedo, so the reflectivity of the surface of the Earth is rapidly decreasing over this area and, and globally. And that means that more heat is absorbed by the by, by the oceans and by the by Earth overall, so by the Earth system. And that means, or that translates into increase in uh, global warming. So your research concentrates on what geographical area? I'm trying to understand which shipping routes is encompassed. I'm guessing it's what, Shanghai to San Fran or what? Yeah, so all, the, all of, of East Asia indeed to the west of North America, but also to from uh, the east of the United States to, to Europe and to the Middle East. So it's, it's really the the North Pacific, so the, the region I can say is 20 to 60 degrees north. And that's for both regions. And then 
and then from the west coast of the of North America to the east coast of Eurasia, and then from the west coast of Europe to the east coast of North America. That's the Atlantic Ocean. So you're doing both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, right? Yeah. So what I think you're doing here, just to clarify, is that you're doing a, both a spatial and the time series analysis. So you're basically saying, are the areas which get ship tracks brighter than areas which don't get ship tracks? And then how does that effect change over time? Is that correct? Yeah, so from the, we can see, look at the global changes and we can look at the regional changes. And then we can see that the regional changes in these areas are more significant. So the, they are leading. So if, the, if, there's a, if there's a global increase in reflectivity from to, in 2020, for example, and we, and we see a decrease in these regions, that's of course sig a signal, it's not directly causation, of course, but it's a coincision that at the same time of these reduction sulfur emissions over these regions, you can see a so decrease in light that's reflected over the area. Was there a sharp change when these new rules came in? Or did it fade in over a number of months? What was the effect time-wise? It's a bit difficult to see it from the noise, especially in the, in the North Pacific Ocean, because you have their El Nino and you have Pacific decadal oscillations. So you have these different anomalies. But we see from, so now we have about two years of data from when this reduction of emissions has been realized. And the first data shows that there's, there is a significant increase in absorbed solar radiation in these areas. And already from 2015 onwards, there is, there is some indication of that. And already, as I mentioned before, in 2015, the first sulfur regulation came into effect in around North America and uh, around Northwestern uh, Europe, where the, where the regional emissions of sulfur reduced with, I think, 94%. And the emission of cloud condensation nuclei from the ships reduced with 80%. What I'm keen to understand, I mean, I, I followed this, these natural experiments for quite some time. And my understanding of the situation is that there's quite a strong causal mechanism here. So there's a good reason to believe that this effect is real. And that's why people want to go and have a look for it, right? The mm -hmm. problem is distinguishing displacement from changes. Yeah. So what steps did you have to take to make sure that what you were seeing was a real increase in radiative flux, a decrease in albedo as a result of these changes and not just clouds moving from one place to the other, but not affecting an overall change? Yeah, so with two years of data, it's it's not never really possible to, to see a direct causation, of course, but we have these regions are really, really large. So for the North Pacific Ocean, the region we are looking at is 37 million square kilometers. And the North Atlantic Ocean is over 22 million square kilometers. So because we have such a large area, of course, the data is also more significant. If, if, okay, if, so in terms of your observations, just talk me through how you're going about observing this area. So it's a satellite observation, but are you 
Is it a single geostationary satellite that's permanently looking at the whole area? Or are you talking about striping it with a polar orbit satellite? You're only getting maybe a 90-minute orbit or whatever so that you're not seeing, you're not continually monitoring. What's the data? And also, the other thing I wanted to understand is what spectrum band is it in? Is it all visible light or are you looking in the near infrared as well? Yeah, so we, we mainly take the data from, from series and that's, that's already the flux data. And, and that's based on two satellites, indeed, that they're not, they, they move around. So they, uh, I think they, they cross area yeah. five times a day. And then they take, they take the monthly average. And then from the monthly average, uh, we, can, we can make a 12-year a running mean. And how did you process the data to make sure that you weren't being affected by irregular or not irregularities, but periodic effects where the satellites were passing later on some days than others? So you're, you might be getting the solar zenith on certain days, but then you wouldn't get the solar zenith on others. How are you processing the data to make sure that you were not being swamped by that effect? Yeah, that's that's all done by NASA. That's 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 done by series. That's the organization from NASA, which delivers the, the flux data. So they, they take they take all these facts into account. Yeah, I can't, I can't go into it, or you can you can check the website. I can share it. If you, if you really yeah, I mean, there's no need. That. I mean, basically, your your experiment wasn't involving that processing. That data processing is upstream of you. And one of the things I've learned from doing this podcast is that there's an awful lot of papers which are based on reanalysis of data i kind of had it in my head that most people went out and hunt, hunted and killed their own data right that's not really the case a lot of the time people are taking publicly available data sets and then analyzing them in new ways to make sure that they understand the full story of what the data is telling them and I, I guess that's largely what you've been doing here right you know in part so one one there's one data source we look at so we this is the satellite data but even the satellite data is anchored to ocean data. And we also look at ocean heat content. And then from the, the ocean heat content, we have someone in our team who's, who's looking at that. So to compare it also with how, how did the ocean heat content change in these regions. Um, but how are you deriving ocean heat content? Are you doing that from infrared radiation or are you doing that by integrating the radiative flux and computing it what, what method are you using there so around the world there's these there are four to five thousand argo floats which are these buoys the they and they measure the temperature and the salinity of the ocean up to two thousand meters deep um, and with with this data this data can be used to analyze how much heat has gone into the oceans over a certain period of time. I mean, 5,000 boys sounds like a lot, right? Because if you put them in a pile, it'd be quite a big pile. But that's like the population of a large village spread out over the entire global ocean, which is dropping the ocean, really. Does this give you enough data points to be able to reliably interpolate the surface ocean temperature and the ocean heat content at all the points you need or not? Yeah, so indeed, it would be nice to have much more uh, more data. I have a, a thermal camera, and I have much more, many more pixels on my thermal camera than on the 
than we have from uh, the global ocean indeed. So uh, it would be nice to have at least uh, an order of magnitude more visibility of what's happening in the oceans. That's that's true, but still over over the, the a longer period of time, you can really see the changes in in temperature and in in, in heat in the oceans. So you're using these Argo floats to calibrate what your thermal cameras are telling you and to give you more detail about different depth strata, right? Yes. So that yeah, so we're doing it both ways. So that this this is what's already NASA is doing with with this, with their satellite data. And then we do it also to, to the other way around to see how well they 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 communicate. And we, and we look just at the satellite data and just at the ocean heat content. Okay, so you've given us an idea of the effect you're looking for and the methodology that you're following to find out what that effect is doing to the climate system as a whole. So can you give us an idea of how big an effect this is? Is it something we need to worry about? Or is it just down in the noise? We don't need to really care about it too much. Yeah, so we, we cannot put a, put a a number on on it just yet, but if you if you look at Earth energy imbalance, which has been I think from the nineteen seventeen to two thousand eighteen, it has been about half a watt, so half a watt over the Earth, entire surface of the Earth, uh, uh, energy has been entering the, the system, and this has changed to about one watt per square meter over the for the past years and looking at the data from, from the satellite data this year it might reach 1.6 watts per square meter and that's over the entire surface of the planet which is really significant and if this trend continues so nasa mentioned that the rate of global warming has doubled in the, since 2014 if this trend continues, it, it's it's now about reaching triple tripling in, in the past twenty years. And of course, if this trend continues, we will see much more warming, much faster than we've we've ever observed in the past. Which so, yeah. just let me let me try and clarify what I think I've heard there because it was pretty surprising. So, of that one point six watts per square meter that global warming is causing. What do you think the the forcing that new as a result of these this shit track suppression is causing? If you, I appreciate you might not have been able to go down to number, but are we looking at you know did I hear you right when 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 I was thinking that it was 0.6 of a watt, or is it you know just one percent of 0.6 of a watt? What what what's the kind of scale of this? Yeah, it's, it's in it's in in a way it's anyone's guess, right? Because we've we really, we really don't know what what what's happening. There's really little modeling studies done here, and we just have now two years of data, which is really little to say something conclusive. But the worst case, let's say worst case, of the of the simple modeling studies, is half a watt per square meter of additional global warming from this shipping emission reduction <clears throat> and my educated guess is that that's 
that could happen. I mean, that's pretty terrifying. So what you're saying is this, this, this measure, which ostensibly has been done to care for fluffy bunnies and be nice to the planet, has actually backfired in a quite enormous way. And you are now seeing a situation where it's increased global warming by over the order of 50%. Potentially, yes. Yeah, it's, I hope it's not, I hope it's it's just an a, a annual anomaly and it goes down, but potentially it's, a, and that's why we call it also the risk of a termination shock, that it, we cannot include exclude such a significant change to the to the heating. Well, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how many kind of Teslas is this equivalent to in terms of getting a gas car off the road and replacing it with a Tesla, or how many transatlantic flights? it's equivalent to getting rid of. But I mean, that's just a meaningless comparison, really, isn't it? You're looking at increasing the potency of global warming by something like 50% just by getting rid of the aerosol masking effect. I mean, that's an absolute catastrophe. I mean, that, that would be easily more than all of the global mitigation efforts that have ever been done some, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's... Sounds sounds if 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 we indeed have what the square meter of warming, then you are right. But that's that's a really high estimate, of course. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's not impossible because if you look at the glo- at global warming in the past, say fifty years, ninety percent of global warming of the, the warming of the planet has gone into heating of the oceans so the so all the, so the most of between talk about global warming most of it is ocean warming and then if you reduce the aerosol emissions over the oceans from one day to the next with 80 percent of course it's not practically one day to the next but yeah from a, from a regular regulatory perspective, from one day to the next, the sulfur emissions have been reduced with 80% over the oceans. You can tell that that, that could have a significant effect, even though these uh, the total global sulfur emissions, um, sorry, shipping is just 10% of the global sulfur, anthropogenic sulfur emissions, but it's about almost 100% of the direct sulfur emissions over the oceans, of course, because there's not a lot of industry over the oceans. Yeah, I guess I mean, the, the thing that makes the difference there is that the ocean is very dark and the air above the ocean is very clean. So you have aerosols which are more effective inducing clouds. Yeah, so the oceans are dark indeed, and they are, of course, transparent in a way. So if you have clouds, they reflect much of the light, up to 90% of the light that hits a cloud is reflected back to space. But if there's no cloud, the, the heat enters the ocean. It, it's not just, if you look at the, the surface area, if you on land, you of course, it heats the surface of the land. But the oceans, the light is, so the energy enters. Uh, those like, clouds are much more effective at changing. Yeah, but even just looking at the water, comparing to land, to, so the the radiation enters up to 40 meters inside inside the ocean so it really heats heats the water up to up to 40 meters deep directly just by radiating but does that matter i mean like the the ocean is 
And basically, that's where you want the heat to go, right? You don't want it hitting the land because people live there and they grow crops there. So, and it has a more direct effect on weather because the a certain amount of heat energy going to the land will raise the temperature far more than that same amount of heat energy going into the ocean because the land warms much quicker, which is why you know, like like continental climates have like 80 degree temperature swings between winter and summer, right? So the, in the ocean, the temperature is a lot less variable because the ocean can absorb an awful lot of heat without really changing its temperature very much, right? Whereas the land doesn't do that. So will it really matter in terms of human impacts and yeah, so, the climate we experience or not? So from if, if the land warms, the radiation increases and there's much more quickly there, there is a balance reached. You can see that if, 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 if the temperature goes up, ra- radiation goes up to the, to the fourth power. So that's a degrees Kelvin of, the, of, a, of, of a surface area. And then to the fourth power, the radiation increases. So then, if then you can see that if, if a surface area on land uh, heats rapidly, then it will radiate heat much more rapidly, and then it, this heat will, for for a part, go back to space, and then a new balance will be reached. But for the oceans, heat enters into the oceans, so much more heat is accumulating into the system. And yeah, if you, if you see that, of course, this heat can also increase storms and melt ice and uh, and increase the temperature of the water, of course. And now it's mainly yeah. increasing the temperature of the water, but it in effect it can also it it also influ- influences, of course, the temperature over over land. It also influences how much ice melts, and if more heat is directed to melting of ice of course that will have an effect on sea level rise and so it's i think it's it does matter how much energy goes into the oceans it's, yeah uh, look, i'm not i'm not saying it doesn't matter but what what i'm just trying to understand is that the obviously we're identifying a very significant change to global warming right yeah. um uh, as a result of this but my inference is that in terms of impacts the, the impacts will be a lot less in the short to medium term because you're not having the big land temperature increases and the ocean temperature, although the same amount, you know, the heat goes into the system, the ocean surface temperature will change far less because that heat energy has been mixed into the additional depth of the ocean, right? So it takes a long time before the ocean temperature will rise, you know, to a level where it would start impacting people's lives and livelihoods, right? Yeah, it already influenced livelihoods, of course. If you look at, um, indeed, the, the, so the heat accumulates into the oceans, and then when there's a El Nino period, so a warm period, the heat comes out of the oceans, or a part of the heat comes out of the oceans, and then we can see global warming, so the, so the, the high end of the, of the, of the climate, if you see it, look at the temperature records globally, these have all been reached when there was a El Nino period where more heat is leaving the the Pacific Ocean, especially around the equator. So then, but this heat which is in this ocean has, of course, accumulated over time. And this, you're right that you would see this reduction in emissions over land 
maybe you would see it more directly. But anyway, the global warming has been in the past also been happening mainly so for 90% in the oceans. But that does affect the sea level rise. So the heat, when the heat enters the oceans, the, the sea uh, expands, the water expands, and, the, and then uh, the, the sea level rises. As I mentioned, uh, the heat in the oceans can, when it, when it reaches the Arctic or Antarctic, of course, it can help to melt sea ice and, and, and melt the land ice, especially when it starts raining, when the, the, the temperatures go up. And if, if, if the warm, water is warmer, there will be more water vapor in the atmosphere, which is also a greenhouse gas. So more, even more heat is starts accumulating into the system. If that water vapor that you're saying will increase, is over the oceans, won't that form additional cloud cover? Only if there's enough condensation nuclei available and the, the circumstances are there to, to form cloud cover. <laughs> so, so you're there... saying you're getting a double whammy here because you're not only are you not getting the cloud cover, which is a reflective aerosol set, right? But then mm-hmm. you'll all, you're also having more water vapor in the air, which acts as directly as a greenhouse gas. I'd, I'd not realised that that was an effect, but I guess that having more supersaturated air would, would actually directly cause more global warming, right? Yeah, but that's always the case. So the, you have the, the forcings, which, is, which are mainly greenhouse gases and aerosols. Clean, greenhouse gases warm the, warm the planet and aerosols cool the planet. But then, of course, the feedbacks mechanisms are mainly increase in temperature which increases radiation of heat back to space so that can if in, in, that can cause the system to reach a certain balance at a higher temperature but and, and that's of course that reduces the effect of warming because it cools the planet down but a positive feedback as it's called is is water vapor which is the most significant positive feedback because it's so if the, the temperature of the atmosphere increases the amount of water vapor that the atmosphere can uh, can hold increases and then more heat radiation is absorbed and then the, that will increase the, the, the global warming there's a second order effect here and, and what you're saying there's a feedback with the water vapor directly so as the temperature increases you get more evaporation and the atmosphere can hold more water but there's another effect which I didn't realize is that the lack of cloud condensation nuclei will also cause an increase in the relative humidity because you've got fewer ways of getting that humidity out of the atmosphere. There's there's no there's nowhere for it for it to go, right? And so by by decreasing these cloud condensation nuclei, you're not only making the the atmosphere less shiny you're also making it trap more heat because more of the atmosphere is in a rel- high state, high relative humidity state, some of it being supersaturated, right? Yeah, so the, the, some, there's a one study estimating that the aerosols decrease precipitation by about 6% per degree they cool the planet. Well, greenhouse gases increase precipitation by about 2.5% per degree they warm the planet. So aerosols have been not just hiding the warming, but even more hiding the precipitation increase from global warming. And then indeed that will 
I don't, cannot really put a number on it, but it, it will increase the water that stays into the, in the atmosphere indeed. But precip over the ocean doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, like, you know, unless you live in a small island in the middle of the ocean, like Tuvalu or something like that, then ocean precipitation doesn't really make any difference to anybody. Just water that comes out of the ocean and then falls back in the ocean, right? Yeah, but if you decrease precipitation over the oceans, then it, it, and you make cloud, the aerosols increase cloud condensation nuclei, so there's more clouds which reflect heat back to space. Then if you decrease the aerosols, the, the water will rain out. You, you have both less water in the atmosphere and less aerosols in the atmosphere. But now if, this, if there's warming, this warm air containing all this water vapor will start condensing once it reaches a part of the atmosphere where there is condensation nuclei available, which is over land. So when you saw, for example, um, over... Uh, the very significant amounts of precipitation in in Europe this year, or last year, sorry, not that had not been experienced before. So these kind of events, you can imagine those happening more often when you have more precipitation from, from global warming. I think the same happened in China. There's been a lot of precipitation, I think, in the west of, uh, of North America in the past, uh, past months even. Yeah, it's also something to look at. We've, we've not really been looking at it yet, but the precipitation increase is something to look to look at in the coming years. And indeed, there's not much data on precipitation over the oceans and yeah, whether it matters. But yeah, if, if it, what you're saying, if, if, if this water vapor is not in the atmosphere absorbing the, the infrared radiation, but in the water, when it's in the ocean, then it will, it will, has, it will have less chance of heating the atmosphere well yeah i think my assumption was that aerosols over the ocean would suppress precip over the ocean and therefore you get increased precip when the aerosols disappeared which i think is correct but my i think my error was to assume that that precip would only be relevant over the ocean but what i think you're saying there is the precip you have identified as being likely to increase doesn't just act over the ocean what happens is that precip forms a lot of the rain over continental areas as well because the weather systems which contain the increased water vapor will go over regions with oceanic climate so for example places like the uk and ireland predominantly atlantic climate as opposed to a predominantly continental climate and if the aerosol precipitation suppression is changed then you're going to end up with a lot more potentially heavy rainstorms over land when you supply more condensation nuclei into that very clean supersaturated air so you potentially could have quite devastating rainstorms over you know places like particularly like the west of england cornwall places like that which have got a very they're very influenced by the atlantic climate right is that what you're saying yeah, so I'm not a meteorologist, so I don't I don't know the details on how 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 this could increase rainfall over the UK. But uh, yeah, so my educated guess from from this side is that the Earth will warm and more heat, more the atmosphere will warm more rapidly. So maybe three times as fast as it has done 20 years ago than it was doing 20 years ago, and that will start also increasing 
extreme weather events, including extreme rainfall events. But how that translates to a single country like the UK, I don't, I don't really know. So the, the, the reason we are looking at this is, is like five times the United States. So because we, we really look at the global climate effects, but the regional effect, of course, are and especially over land, you're right, that's that's what, infic, in, what, that's what affects people in reality. So in the end, that's what really matters. But um, the basis is from climate perspective is how much energy accumulates into the system over time. And the first signs is that that is rapidly increasing. So to recap, told us already, your work suggests that we might see roughly a 50% increase in global warming as a result of the reduced sulfate load coming out of ships crossing oceans. Most of that is going to result in ocean changes, ultimately in ocean heat content rather than warming over land. But we might see some pretty severe changes in precip in coastal regions. And in the longer term, we're going to see significant impacts on the cryosphere as the ocean heat starts to melt glaciers and prevent the formation of seasonal sea ice. Is that a fair summary of what we might see? Yeah, so the, the half watts per square meter increase of 50%, that's the high estimate. But that's what we might see, yes. We might. Um, and I hope, I hope uh, so personally, from as a, as a private person, I hope it's, we won't, it, won't, it won't go that way. But the first signs are, are quite disturbing, that there is really a lot of additional heat being absorbed globally already. So there's a, there is already a, a doubling or tripling of the, the rate in global warming. And it doesn't just heat the oceans, but it also heats the land. And over land also the emissions of aerosols are rapidly decreasing. For example, China reduced its sulfur emissions in, the, in 10 years with over 50% already to clean up <coughs> the of course, the, their, their atmosphere, their air, the air they breathe. So it's, it makes sense from, from a regional, regional perspective to, uh, to clean the air. But so one estimate is that the reduction in emissions in sulfur over China in the, in the past decade, in the past two decades, caused a warming of the northern hemisphere of 0.1 degrees already. So, yeah, of course, uh, it's all interconnected. We live on a, on a single planet. And uh, if you reduce emissions in one region, the direct effects will be mostly regional. But, of course, the secondary effects and, uh, and further effects will, of course, be, uh, be global. So what you're describing here is a, a really significant set of changes to the climate system. Uh, which resulting from a measure which was ostensibly done to look after fluffy bunnies, right? So there's that's a big backfire, a really, really big backfire. It's not like a small change, right? So mm. I've got two big questions. Firstly, how are we going to pin down that effect to try and better understand exactly how big the effect is, right? Because you say there's a significant degree of uncertainty. So it makes it challenge to uh, address that. And I'm, I'm really keen to understand how we would go about addressing that. But secondly, I'd really like to understand 
your perspective on on what you think we should do or should have done you know was it just foolish to try and address this air pollution problem should we just kind of suck up the air pollution to deal with the fact that we have this much larger problem of global ocean i mean if we lose thwaites glacier to save a few people who live in port areas then that's a hell of a trade-off right you're going to be looking at potentially displacing millions of people and all of the economic disruption and damage that that would cause plus all of the you know the deaths in storms and things like that from storm surges and other effects which will be exacerbated versus the deaths the predictable deaths of what you know you might cynically say are, are generally the old and sick in in port cities what are your your comments on those two points so those last words were yours of course but i i get where they come from indeed if you compare any any amount of deaths and uh, from any any background or any age to millions of more deaths from any age yeah statistically you can say it's easy to say which is uh, which which is worse but if you are if you are a decision maker and you have to make this choice of course to consciously make the decision to emit pollution which affects the health of people is always a difficult decision of course to make for also if you say okay in the long term in the next decades we will we will decrease global warming significantly with a cert- with with uncertainty yeah and of course that's um to get maybe i should first answer your first question so how do we reduce uncertainties of these effects um i think we we need to have much more observation of what's really happening we already discussed a bit about the ocean heat content so increase observation of the heat in the oceans so low in situ data so observation in the oceans i think much more satellite data would be valuable so yeah so from my perspective we should really focus uh, a lot of research a lot of manpower to solving this question just instrumenting just instrumenting the system better doesn't necessarily improve your knowledge like because let, no, but, let's but, say you have a lot of variability in the forcing then no matter how good your instrumentation is you're not going to be able to tease apart well, that, the forcing right that was the first part of my answer so you, yeah you can you cannot see anything when you're blind of course if even if if there's something to see but then if you want to improve what 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 you can see you have to i think what's important to have a longer time period of data so over the next year so now we only have we have almost two years of data so the the, the last months of data from from 2021 are coming is coming in so that's then we have two years of data which is not not a lot of course but already with this two years of data we see a worrying signal we see a quite very significant increase in heat uptake by the oceans or heating of the oceans and we see significant very significant increase in absorbed solar radiation and that's 
the same as a decrease in with albedo in reflected light over these regions and globally. And then if we have more years of data, this signal will improve and it will be better to, it will be <coughs> easier to say what, what if there's a causation. Well, isn't there a risk that you're kind of closing the stable door after the horse is bolted by increasing instrumentation after the sulfur has gone? You're, you're just looking at a period with no perturbation and learning more about that period doesn't really tell you anything about the perturbation. Yes, that's true. I, uh, indeed, I hope that there was already more observation available in, in the past decades. From the one satellite uh, failed to reach orbit, the glory satellite of NASA. And indeed, but still we can, of course, if we if we have more observation now and we can see that there's a lot of warming happening rapidly, we can, yeah, that's, a, that's an important signal. And then indeed causation is, it's always difficult. But then if you can see that over this region where the shipping emissions have, re, have have reduced if these this region is warming rapidly. It could also mean that it has been kept cold for quite a while in the past decades because there has been a lot of emissions. You painted an extraordinarily gloomy picture here. And let me put a concern to you that I have to a modest extent and other people might have to a more severe extent. Is there not a risk as you're doing this science that you might get rather caught up in the systemic risks here and there's a temptation to see kind of ghosts in the mist right so you want to make sure that you're not missing something because the consequence of missing something is really really high and the consequences of spotting something that's not there hey you're one scientist you know you've got a reputation and that might get trashed if you cry wolf but at the end of the day you know maybe sacrificing your own career to save humanity isn't such a big deal is there not a temptation risk crying wolf here because you you're naturally anxious about the global effect on this or do you think the opposite effect applies and you're very cautious about saying something so radical because you don't want to look a fool, maybe calling it too late? I mean, in my mind, my, my expectation is that it's probably the, the former, which is the bigger risk, you know, calling, calling the threat when it's not there. But maybe people who are more timid than I am would be very wary of calling a threat until they were absolutely certain it was there. So if you look at the IPCC, for example, they say that global warming has been reduced by sulfur emissions up to date with half a degree. They say it in their executive summary of their most recent report, but they don't really communicate it. And they also don't communicate what, that we, what the effects will be. What we now see is that there is, we are rapidly reducing the sulfur emissions the first signal is that there's a very rapid increase in warming. We are at the same time still in increasing the emissions of greenhouse gases. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a messenger here. I just look at the data and I think, yeah, why is, why, why is no 
or why are not more people looking at this? Maybe they are, maybe there are many people looking at it, but I, I don't really uh, see them, that's possible. Okay, how can you not say what you see if, if this is the signal, I think that's, that's, that's quite hard to do. And, and I've, I've heard people who say, if you look at this data, they, they really, from a personal perspective, they don't want to know. They don't really want to, like, yeah, they don't want to know what's happening, right? It's, it's, it's like, if someone dies, the first reaction is denial, in a way. So I think that's a, in a way, it's a natural reaction that if you see that uh, it's possible that the Earth is rapidly the heating, the, the global warming is rapidly increasing. It's, it's denial is is quite a normal response, but it doesn't change the data. And I think it's important to and yeah to 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 communicate this and what. I don't know what the effect will be on on, on, pers- on my pr- personal level. I'm just a messenger, so please don't shoot the messenger. I would say, but uh, yeah, it's well, a- yeah. Just to, just to clarify what you're saying there, that the IPCC saying that it's half a what? Sorry, half a degree. It's not the same as you saying it's 0.6 of a watt. I mean, the- it is you- global. This is global sulfur. So the global sulfur emissions up to date have reduced global warming to date with i think it's between zero and 0.8 degrees celsius and sulfur by itself has decreased global warming by 0.2 to 0.8 degrees celsius and that of course that doesn't take into account the warming that's in a way still in the pipeline because of the imbalance and the delay in how fast the earth warms so that will that will be on top of that and then just looking at the oceans yeah the uncertainties are much higher there because there's really little data on, on and really little studies on that <clears throat> and what's important to know is that the climate models looking at the different scenarios they take into account reduction of aerosols but they also co- coincide that with rapid reduction in methane uh, concentrations in the atmosphere. But in 2020 and 2021, we saw record increases in methane. So we see the opposite happening. But the point I'm making is that you're comparing sulfur reductions over the ocean in your study with the IPCC's global response. And you're also comparing a temperature response with an energy flux and so for two very important reasons that's very different so although yeah, but, but, know, I, I, because i was responding to your question on crying wolf and uh, sharing a, a so, message which which is in a way the same message as the ipcc has in this data but it's not communicating that's what i was responding but, to Okay, well, fine. Well, let, let me re- let me return to the sort of crying wolf point. Now, you know, to be clear, I'm not accusing you of crying wolf, right? I mean, I don't have the basis to do that. What I'm trying to understand here is what the motivations are of scientists working in this manner. You're finding something which is it's approaching the category of an existential risk. It's, it's not far off the idea of a kind of large meteorite. And so 
what I'm trying to understand is, is there a risk that you might, for whatever reason, have a tendency to interpret your data in an either overly cautious or overly, well, depending on which way you view cautious, you would either be swayed to see signals that weren't there in the noise or alternatively to assume that the signal wasn't really there even when there was actually quite good evidence for it. So could you could you summarize, you know, perhaps your own feelings or your understanding of scientists' motivations in general? Do you think that that you and, and others unduly cautious in terms of reporting bad news? Or do you think you are perhaps unduly cautious, but in the opposite direction of you know, taking great care to avoid ignoring existential risks, even when we aren't certain of those existential risks? If there is an error, which direction is it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I read it a while back that scientists are cautious, almost opposite in a way that professional risk managers like health managers or insurance managers or, or yeah war for example in the, in the war situation they are very different cautious in a very different way right so if there's one percent that chance of an airplane crashing people will not get on that airplane but if there's a one percent chance of scientists being being wrong they might they might be more might be hesitant to publish something. That's that's true, and that's what I think. That's why it's important to really look at the at the data and say, okay, what are they saying? And you just share it. Just look at the data and say, okay, this is what it says. And I think it's worthwhile communicating that because this is, I think, in a way most significant perturbation in human influence from a, from one one like one day to the next ever to happen on the planet because we really change the emissions over over the oceans by 80% from about 50,000 ships and these are enormous these are the biggest machines that men have ever built 50,000 of them and changing 3% of, uh, of what they burn, and they burn a lot from one day to the next, that's, uh, or, or taking it out, yeah, that will have a very significant impact on many levels, I think, especially on the, the radiation balance. We have to do the research, and what we will find, we will find. I don't think I am in, in any way trying to change what I, without what I see. You know, sometimes for from a personal level, you hope that you are completely wrong. From a parent, if you if you are if you are a parent, you hope that that there's not much of an effect because you you know that the world you and your children are, will be living in will significantly change. And then, from a science perspective, you hope that uh, that there's some signal you can work with. Uh, so that's um, yeah, I think I think it works both ways in a way, and may, maybe it evens each other out. Yeah, I know your point about scientists being reticent to publish until they're sure that they're correct. I remember talking about this with, with reference to methane release. And I was at a conference right at the beginning of my scientific uh, 
career such that it is not that i've ever earned any money from it but the i was trolling a bunch of people at this conference saying that if scientists see a kid in front of a truck and the kid's going to get hit by the truck they won't go and push the kid out of the way until they can prove the speed of impact of the truck and the mass and how far the kid will be splatterated down the road and who owns the truck and what it's carrying and only when They've got all of that evidence when they go and push the kid out of the way of the truck. So I think that, yeah, that kind of affords a bit of credibility to, to, to my rather trolly argument I was making at the time. I think I lost a couple of friends to that, but uh, hey, it's not a new experience for me. Yeah, I think most will still push the kid off. And indeed, I'm, I may be a person that will push more rapidly than, than others. Others might be more hesitant and I think you're right that yeah I will I'm doing this research even though there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, yeah as you mentioned there's not a lot of data over the oceans but we have to work what we have and that's why also we choose a very large region of very large area to to analyze because then we can see over a very yeah we have there's less noise of course over a large area and yeah, in, and then I think it's, I try to share the message, but that's in a way, of course, this message has been shared quite quite often already, but it doesn't really see, seem to to land in a way because it's 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 I think James James Sanson calls it a Faustian bargain that it's the, the aerosol emissions which coincide with. The emissions of greenhouse gases when burning fossil fuels they hide the warming effect of those fossil fuels and therewith hide the, the negative effects of the very positive effects of, of using these very convenient fuels and then now we are of course at a certain moment you you, can, you cannot always keep burning more and more you cannot keep emitting more and more aerosols and that's what we're doing now. We've, we're increasing the emissions of aerosols. And then we see the true warming effect of greenhouse gases, because of course the warming effect comes from greenhouse gases. And so we're, yeah, if you, if you take it from, from the perspective of a Faustian bargain, you could say that the devil has come to collect, like, of course, yeah, it's like a more mythical comparison that you have a contract with the devil and then you only get the good stuff, and then at a certain time the devil comes to collect and say, "Okay, yeah, you had all this good stuff, and now you, this is the the price you we agreed you would pay." Yeah, that's. And then I think that a, pow a powerful and troubling metaphor. Uh, so what I want to get onto now is the idea of how we react to this in a policy in policy terms. Now, except that this might be your own opinion or your own speculation, and it might be outside the scope of your academic work, but hey, you know, this is the podcast where you get to chat shit and no one really cares because it's review or two and no one takes this very seriously. So what do you think we should do about it? Should we go and do a ton of geoengineering or should we all build bigger sea walls or should we run around and scream with our hair on fire and panic or what's your idea of the solution? Yeah, I, you know, so my first response is that I'm. So it's more of a joke as well. Like I'm glad I'm not the decision maker who has to make decisions which uh, 
people will have to start making very soon. And so the first, of, indeed, that's also water under the bridge that we should have paid more attention on this. We should have have that observation there. We should have invested more in research. We should have reduced the greenhouse gas emissions rapidly. <coughs> so that's for the, what we should have done. So what well, that's should great. Have, Thanks for yeah. telling us all the things we should, <laughs> but we haven't done any of them. So what are we yeah. actually going to do? So the next thing is make sure that we know what's really happening. So that's what I'm working on, of course, here to know what's what what. Of course, this is in a way already solar radiation management, right? So we've we've been cooling the oceans with an uncertain <coughs> amount in the past decades. And let's take the high end of the number, let's say it's half watt per square meter. Then we've <coughs> for yeah, so we've we've about half half or a third of the warming rate from the past decades was hidden so what some people might say is okay let's just keep reducing those aerosols what what if you don't want to have the negative health effects you could decide to increase for example the the this emission control areas and have more emissions over the open ocean while still keeping the emissions near the coastlines lower so you don't have the at least the health effects, of course, there still will be some environmental effects of acidification, etc. I'm, so I'm what not, you're proposing there to keep self-control near ports, but then use a kind of secondary fuel type in the open ocean to preserve this effect. Is that is that what you're? I'm thinking? not saying I'm not saying I'm I'm proposing that. I, I said some people did research. On the effects, and in a way, of, yeah, you could you could call it proposal. They, they they analyzed it as a possibility of reducing the emissions over the near the coast. So you reduce the health effects, while you still you might even increase the, the aerosol emissions over the ocean. I of course there are some there's some studies saying we should have specific ships emitting salt particles. I don't know. I, I haven't done research on that. But I think it's it's quite difficult to com compete with these fifty thousand ships that have do have been doing it for free, right? They've, they've been sailing the oceans, transporting goods from A to B, and then emitting these sulfurs as as a byproduct and cooling the atmosphere as a byproduct. Well, that well, that's that's only partially true, right? Because the thing you're missing in your analysis there is that the ships are not they're not designed to manipulate the climate and therefore they're actually not very good at it although they do a good job because there are so many of them so big but they're not doing the job that they would do if they were designed to do that job so for example no, you could use, if you compare like if you have if you would have a, a someone have the job to emit greenhouse gases it will be it will be difficult to compete with the global capitalist industry to to emit as many greenhouse gases as we are emitting at the moment because it's well, 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 that's, that's not that's not true. I mean, it's, I'm glad you picked that example. It's a good way of showing that it isn't true. I mean, if I wanted to make a large amount of greenhouse gases very quickly, 
emptied and I certainly wouldn't use carbon dioxide because it's not a very good greenhouse gas. And in fact, I've actually recently worked on a paper about using deliberate greenhouse gas releases to deliberately raise the global temperature. That okay. paper's still on review, so we'll I'll talk more about that, that in due course. But the point that I'm making is that the, the climate change, both from shipping and from greenhouse gas emissions in general, is it, just a byproduct. It's not designed out, and nobody would do that by having enormous ships the size of towns floating around the open ocean and burning fuel, which is only 3% sulfur. There are much more efficient ways of doing it. What I'm trying to draw you on, if I could mm. kind of cut to the chase here, is yeah. should we use this as a kind of trigger point to say, right, now it's time to start doing geoengineering. We can't possibly tolerate all this extra warming, nor do we want lots of dead old people, probably some dead babies, in port cities. So what we're going to do is we're going to go and do either marine cloud brightening or stratospheric sulfur aerosol engineering. Is that a sensible response or, you know, it's a logical alternative of just sort of sitting there? I think, I think it might so. be logical, but is it, yeah, things to be logical without being sensible, right? You know, you could say, well, look, I'm going to, I want to reduce the amount of suffering in the world. Okay, well, the best way of reducing the amount of suffering in the world is to kill everybody in the world. But that's logical, but it's not sensible. Right. So yeah. what I'm trying to draw you on here is what's a sensible response? What should we be doing? Yeah, in, 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 in a way, that's, of course, that's a million dollar question. I think there's many people that say, OK, we think you, you being who you are, reviewed to doing uh, geoengineering. You would say, of course, we should we should at least consider it and. Of course, we should consider it. Well, well don't, put, don't put words into my mouth. Because, I mean, like, and what I'm trying to do is get your opinions here, not mine. I mean, imagine you were world king and you had to make this decision, right, as to whether or not we did replace the aerosols using stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. Just to pick an example, I mean, I'm not saying that that would necessarily be the technique because I'm just picking it because it, it's probably the best studied and probably the most, well, as far as we know, it's the easiest and safest to implement, right? And, yeah. and, and also, it's a close, the closest analog in your case what we're replacing, right? So it would seem to be a good choice. Are you saying stratospheric aerosol it. injection? Yeah, stratospheric aerosol injection. I mean, it's, a, it's a relatively yeah. well-developed approach, I, I, right? I don't know what the effects are. I don't know what the effects are on, on food production, on, on UV reaching the surface, on, on the tropospheric, or sorry, stratospheric ozone, on tropospheric... UV and hydroxyl formation, and so what effect does that have on on methane in the in the in the troposphere? So those are things I think I would want to work on first, or have a have an expert well, opinion I, my, on first. My, underst- my understanding is that it reduces stratospheric ozone, but it reduces UV reaching the surface because the, there's a relatively loose link between the two. Yeah, so oh, if you reduce be. UV reaching the surface, you would reduce hydroxyl. And hydroxyl cleans up the atmosphere and, and removes methane. So it's by far the biggest sink of methane. And also from ozone. That's really interesting. I don't actually know whether that effect has been studied. Do you think that that's an, a real effect? Then that would be fascinating to see a paper on because 
if solar geoengineering had an innocent effect that increased global warming, then we should definitely know about it. And if you'd like to knock up a paper on that, I'd be very happy to either collaborate with you or to give you a, an outing on the podcast when you've done it. That would be a fascinating addition to the canon of knowledge on this matter. So I hope you can do some work on that because it'd be very important if nobody else has. And I, I, I do read a lot of literature in this field and I think and I do take an interest in methane. And if I think if there was some research on that area, then I probably would have read it and I don't remember it. So I think that would be an area that is worth researching. So I get your natural caution as a scientist to know everything about the truck that is coming towards the small child, right? <laughs> but let's assume that you just have to make a decision whether to push the child or not. Yeah. Um, in this circumstance, do you push the child? Do you apply more forcing to compensate for the forcing that's been lost? Or do you let the truck hit the child? I mean, I know it's a loaded metaphor. It's a bit cruel to frame it in that way. But yeah, but maybe... maybe. Well, I have children living near the coastline, of, in a, so in a way, it's a quite, quite a direct metaphor. Well, I mean, but, the whole of you live in Holland, don't you? So the, yeah. whole, the whole thing's near the coastline. In fact, most of it is underwater, apart from the fact that dikes keep now, right? So, thirty percent so, of the Netherlands would be underwater if there if there were no dikes and no pumps already. So, indeed, and then if you increase the sea level, which in the worst case would increase two meters. You know, yeah. At a certain moment, of course, we cannot hold the sea back. And I think that does not include a rapid acceleration in the heating of the oceans by so uh, increasing. Is your judgment then that we do we do the geoengineering or your judgment that we don't do the geoengineering? Yes, depending on what you what you call geoengineering. I think that's how how to do the geoengineering is then I think a, a yeah very I, important I get there's discussion there's a lot there's a lot to be determined but yeah I think it's useful to come down off the fence <laughs> so just to sort of move on to the last mile of the podcast what how does this fit into a broader program of work for you what what's the next steps what what are you personally going to research and maybe if you're moving away from this what are you asking other people to research after you've, you've left the field. So we, we already discussed a bit about methane. What I think is very interesting, so interesting as in from a research perspective, is that there was a, there, a record increase in methane in the atmosphere in 2020, which is, of course, the same year as this rapid reduction in, in sulfur emissions over the oceans happened. And in 2021, there will be most probably again a record. And this is the first time there has been such a large increase in tropospheric methane. And, if, and it will be the first time that there's two record years set after another. And that might have to do with the decrease in clouds over the ocean, which decreases the, the uptake of Demethyl sulfide, the, which is emitted by algae, which is normally, or sorry, which which is also new research shows takes up takes hydroxyl to 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 react with, and if and unless there's clouds which will take out 
out, out these, these molecules. So if you reduce cloud cover over the oceans by reducing sulfur emissions from ships, you increase the hydroxyl that's needed to react with dimethyl sulfide, and then there's less sorry, there's less hydroxyl available to react with methane. So that can be one of the reasons why there's already an increase in methane. So that's one subject I think that's interesting to work on. Other subjects which are interesting to work on are are the heating. Well, just to just to just to hold you on that point, if you add in an additional methane-based warming, I mean that would add to global warming more generally, right? So you're going from potentially half a watt or 0.6 watts per square meters or thereabout, you might find that the methane adds quite a bit. I mean, methane is like 25% of global warming today anyway, right? So that yeah. if you had a really significant methane effect, you could do quite a lot of damage with that, right? Yeah, so then, and as of course, if, if that effect proves to be true, there will be a change to the sink. And that means that in the future, every, every year we will see this effect. <clears throat> so every year we will see a decrease in sink because that's then from now on, the sink will be decreased. And that's very important because uh, all the models, the modeling studies, as I mentioned before, show that there's, a, there's an expect, expected decrease of methane when, when we decrease mainly sulfur emissions. But in reality, as I mentioned, at least in two years, we've seen a very significant reduction in sulfur emissions. We also see a record increase in methane emissions, which indeed increases methane the warming emissions more. Or methane oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, methane increase in increase in atmospheric methane concentrations. So, just to be clear, are you saying that this is runs counter to people's expectations? You're you're, you're suggesting that a reduction in sulfur has led to an increase in methane levels, whereas other people have suggested that a reduction in sulfur would cause a reduction in methane. Do I understand that correctly? I don't think, I think they didn't take into effect that decreasing sulfur would increase methane. And they did take into effect that the world would act on the negative effects of greenhouse gas emissions and would reduce greenhouse gas emissions which is not being done at speed needed, which, so can, of course, can I just ask you, I, I just want to understand the effect, this effect on methane precisely. You're, you're telling me something which may indicate a really very fundamental change to the way the atmosphere works, right? So there's two possibilities. Either the methane, if you reduce the methane sink, then it's a little bit like the thermal equilibrium of a heated planet, that it gets hotter, but then it stabilizes relatively quickly. So, you know, if we add extra heat through global warming to the Earth system, it's not like our planet will just keep getting hotter by one degree every few years, and then it will just keep getting hundreds and hundreds of degrees hotter until the oceans boil away and there's no life left on Earth, right? It will reach equilibrium in a new hotter climate quite quickly. But yeah. what I think you might be saying about methane, and I really want to drill you down on this point because it is absolutely critical, are you saying that methane will just take a bit longer to decompose? Or are you suggesting that we might reach a situation where the methane sink is just permanently below the fluxes of methane into the atmosphere? So every year, 
methane just accumulates and accumulates and accumulates in the atmosphere, and with it, the warming increases too. Which of those two things is happening? So we now see is that the increase in concentration in, in the atmosphere. What causes that, I think, is one reason is that, or potential reason is that we reduce the sink. And we did not reduce, significantly reduce, some say we did reduce already in the past year also the emissions. I don't know what happens if we decrease the emissions. I hope we can increase the... Let's imagine we don't decrease the emissions. Let's imagine that we keep the same emissions or they rise a bit, and I think they said their methane emissions are still rising, right? Is there a possibility that we'll just get to a point where you just cannot clear methane from the atmosphere and it just keeps accumulating like carbon dioxide does, right? I mean, it wouldn't be the first greenhouse gas to permanently accumulate in the atmosphere or permanently on a human timescale anyway. Yeah, indeed. That's possible that we've decreased the sink and if we don't increase the sink, then it will keep increasing. The, the concentration keeps increasing faster if we have to keep the current emissions. So the source, if we keep the source the same, of course, we are increasing the source on many levels. But if we keep the source the same and we decrease the sink, by what, either by this uh, hypothetical effect, because it's a hypothesis, I don't, I'm not sure if that's really happening, or by decreasing the UV reaching the troposphere and also re reducing the hydroxyl, then indeed, then we, or, or, or if, we, if we close the ozone hole, that's another effect, right? That uh, the decrease in ozone in the troposphere or in the stratosphere has led to more UV reaching the, the surface and increase the hydroxyl and increase the, uh, the, the methanes, the sink. So if the, if the amount of ozone starts recovering, that also could increase the, the buildup of methane. So yes, there are as many... Well, yeah, but there's a negative feedback effect that you're not factoring in there because the, a lot of the... A lot of the, the methane in the stratosphere is photolyzed into hydroxyl radical. So I meant, I meant so the, you know, the, the ozone absorbs UV radiation. And if you take, a, if, if there's less ozone, more o, UV radiation reaches the Earth's surface. And then, in, in, in the, and then it creates hydroxyl in the troposphere, and this hydroxyl in the troposphere reduces methane in the troposphere. There's, an, there's a negative feedback here in that as you decrease the amount of ozone, then you would let more UV light in and that would clean up more methane. So the, if you have a situation where the, there's suppression of ozone by methane because the, the, it's not, sorry, it's not the, I misspoke earlier, but my understanding of it is that Oxygen radicals, which go on to form ozone, can attack methane in the stratosphere. Okay, and if they, and that's a sink for methane. Now, if that ozone isn't there and isn't able to metabolize the methane in, in the in the stratosphere, then that 
that effect can happen in the troposphere and you have a buildup of hydroxyl radicals in the troposphere. So my instinct is that there is some element of negative feedback going on there. But I think it would be very interesting to see further research on this about the, the effect of sulfur reduction on precip, as you discussed earlier, and on methane concentrations. And you know, furthermore, just clarifying the core thesis of your paper, which is about the heating. You know, we need to know how much heat is coming in. So I think we've gone through this reasonably comprehensively, the kind of knock-on effects of your work. We've talked about your uh, the challenges of addressing the situation we now find ourselves in with the increased heat flux into the Earth system. We've talked about, at the beginning, the challenges of doing the kind of work you've done and, and the methodologies you've followed to do it. So is there anything that you'd like to say or, um, or do you think that we covered all of your work? So there's one point, maybe you can say something about it as well, the, the aspect of a termination shock. I think there's the term mainly used, solar radiation management. And it could, of course, in a way, this is solar radiation management and changes in solar radiation management, but mm-hmm. unintentional. And the, the rapid decrease in tropospheric aerosols over the oceans could result in a termination shock. Do you think that's a suitable analogy? Do you think it's, it works for people? Do you think it's, it makes sense? Yeah, I wasn't aware that you're now the interviewer, but as you've asked the question, <laughs> I will attempt to address it. So, you know, yeah, I think that it is an interesting analog to termination shock. I think it will have a number of useful additions to the discussion, although, you know, on the back of a potential catastrophe. So let's not get too cheery about it. It will help us look at monitoring techniques and refine those so that we are better able to quantify any termination shock. It will also help us understand the politics of a termination shock in terms of the decision whether to restart or amend the geoengineering program. So let's say, for example, we we envisage a situation where we had a geoengineering program which had to be cancelled for whatever reason. There might be a patent dispute or there might be some unknown physical effect caused damage to the stratosphere or whatever. You know, we're learning stuff all the time. I'd be very surprised if it was more and something that we might sufficiently serious to prompt people to not do geoengineering anymore. So your paper is useful, I think, in terms of producing science and policy learnings about termination shock. So that's my view on it. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I mean, you can interview me about more stuff if you like, but uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was hoping to do the interview here, if that's all right. So, yes, yeah, so um, is there anything? Because it's a question I was, I have myself, and I think it's, at least to me, when I have, have a talk with someone, it always helps to, you know, to, to discuss the different views of the, and different perspectives of, of, the, of the area. And because I, I certainly don't... I don't think it's a foolish comparison, put it that way. Yeah, because, of course, now in the, in the past weeks, there's been quite some discussion about whether we should even do research on, so, on solar radiation management. And in a way, of course, what we are doing is research on solar radiation management. Well, so, yeah, according to that letter, then you should be 
facing such severe career consequences that you can't do this research anymore. So that's uh, that's their view, apparently, if I understand it correctly. But unfortunately, we can't ask them about their views because we haven't had anybody willing to come on the podcast and talk about them. But we might we might have somebody. Someone's uh, been chatting a little bit with a view to coming on, but has not yet come on because they're only signatory and not an author. So we might get them on to discuss this. So other than your uh, questioning me about termination short catalogue, which I'm happy to give you, is there anything else you want to discuss or or is that is that all done? Yeah, I think then uh, that's done. Well, well, let me let me just wrap up by giving you a traditional review or two rejection. And I'm going to reject all of your work, both past and future, on the grounds that you're a massive doom monger and have probably got the most miserable of all the messages that we've had of anybody on the podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a tale of woe and hopelessness the misery and environmental destruction and on this occasion i'm going to take great delight in shooting the messenger so with a large shotgun blast i'm gonna thank you for coming on the podcast and and take you tell you to take your miserable research elsewhere okay thank you very very much much. for your review i'll take somewhere else bye-bye bye